You're listening to the Northwestern Campus Ministry Podcast from Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa. Northwestern Campus Ministry exists to send students out as those rooted, built up, and established in Christ for God's glory and for the sake of the world. Thanks for listening and enjoy this recent message from our Christian Formation Program. Today we're going to be kind of focused in Acts chapter 17. Uh, over the next four Tuesdays, we're going to broaden our focus to this, this really this biblical notion of idolatry. So to start things off, I'm really curious, what do you think of uh, when you think of idolatry? What do you think of when you think of an idol? Do you think of a person a long time ago literally physically bowing down to a metal statue? I'd like to invite us to consider the biblical truth of the fact that idolatry isn't a long time ago, it's today, and idolatry isn't just physically the act of bowing down. Idolatry has everything to do with the heart. If I were to put forth a little bit of a definition or framework for the way we think about idols, idols are really anything more fundamental to our happiness, identity, and and meaning in life than God himself. Therefore, it doesn't necessarily even have to be bad things. Idols can be incredibly great, good gifts, good things turned into ultimate things, therefore God-like things. If you want to discern your culture, if you want to discern your own heart, I'd invite you to consider you really got to begin to discern idols. Maybe you're like me where you've asked yourself this question, why can't I change? I want to change. Why can't I change? Why do I continue to do the things that I don't want to do? Perhaps it's because you haven't confronted, you can't, you haven't confronted the idols of your heart. And so with that framework in mind, would you pray with me? God, would your word be our rule? Would your spirit be our teacher? And Jesus, would your glory be our single concern? And all God's people said, amen. All right, so Acts 17, let's dive in a little bit. Verse 16, it picks up. Acts is, there's missionaries flying all over the place. Paul, he's flying all over the place. He ends up in Athens. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas, two of his good buddies, and he's provoked by this city, Athens, full of idols. And what I love about Paul is how does he respond? It says he gets into it. He gets into the marketplace. The marketplace in Athens, so different so different than like a mall that you and I were, would go to downtown, buy some clothes, get some fast food. The marketplace in that time, it's where everything happened, especially in Athens. You see, Rome, in, in the Greco-Roman world, Rome was this epicenter of power, Alexandria, this historic epicenter, but Athens at that time, it was the epicenter of culture and thought, okay? In the marketplace, everything happens. So you got art, business, theater, media, philosophy, debating, great thinking, uh, stock exchange, all communication. Everything happened in this place. Paul gets into it. And so it's sort of like going to Harvard, Hollywood, the New York Times, Wall Street, Disney World, checking out Instagram, all at the same time in the same place. That's sort of what Paul was getting into. And this teaches us something, that there's something about our heart's that we are made to worship. And therefore, in our sin, we are idol-making factories. But there's something about idolatry that leaks bigger than our private lives into the public square, into the marketplace, into the way our society itself structures itself. 
This is why Paul was where he was. He doesn't shrug his shoulders, and he also isn't too concerned with staying pure and separate from, but he gets into it, and he starts confronting these idols. And again, idolatry, anything more fundamental than God himself. He looks at Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. He looks at Artemis, the goddess of money and prosperity. He looks at Athena, the goddess of reason, intellect, and right doctrine. And we might not use these names for these goddesses today, but the question is, is are we any different? Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. How many selfies do we take concerned with how we project our beauty? How many swipes do we make looking at a human, maybe dressed immodestly with lust in our heart? The goddess of beauty, is it at play in our society today? And there's... Artemis, the goddess of prosperity, if we're honest, how often do we think about quitting our job and taking another job or even getting into a job or a career path really tied to the salary and the money, if we're honest with our hearts? And then there's the goddess Athena, reason, intellect, right doctrine. Do we love learning for the sake of learning or do we love the diploma, the status, the the degree? Do we love the good grade more than the learning itself? Do we love the power and control, the position, the status more than the calling? Do we love the influence more than the people? Do we love the argument more than the human being we're disagreeing with, right? Like, are these counterfeit gods still at play in our day-to-day? I think the wisdom of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament rings true. There's nothing new under the sun. Since sin entered the world through Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden way back in that Genesis, all the way to today, we have a way of resurrecting towers of Babel, resurrecting idols, but they take on a lot of different names. They were different names in Paul's day, but it's the same old idolatry where we as humans, idol-making factories, we with our own hands make our own gods, replacing true God for a counterfeit one. But this is hard work, this is tender work, because every generation has to name its idols. Every culture, every city like Orange City, every place like this campus, your families, you came from a pattern in your families that structured themselves and their way of being around idols. We gotta face those things, we gotta see them. And so Paul, he saw these idols, but we can't confront what we don't see, right? So we got to see idols. We have to understand all the ways to which they show up. They show up in personal, cultural, and religious ways. We can make an idol out of our children, family, our spouse. We can make an idol out of our moral performance. We can make an idol out of our commitment, even religious commitment. We can make an idol about how people perceive us, esteem us, or even how people need us. We can make an idol out of academic or athletic achievement. We can make an idol out of our social media persona. One scholar would say that one of the great scandals of our day is that, especially in America, evangelical Christianity in America, that we have so many born-again believers who go, yes and amen to Jesus, yes to the cross, yes to the resurrection, yes to following the Holy Spirit, but people who've never confronted the idols deep in their heart and deep in their society, the private idol and the public ones. Tim Keller once wrote a book on idolatry, and he puts it this way. He says, underneath every person is idols. Every culture, every psychological disorder, every problem socially, moral problem, intellectual problem, underneath it all, it's idols. 
And this is what God gave Paul as he walks down Areopagus in the middle of this city full of idols, Athens. God gave him an x-ray vision to see all the idols in this city, this epicenter in this Greco-Roman world. And we here in the United States and people across the globe, it's not a question of are we worshiping an idol or if we're worshiping an idol, it's a question of what has our worship? What has our worship? And if you really want to know what you're worshiping, you got to know your idol. And if you want to know your idol, you got to ask yourself, are you looking to any created thing to give you only what God can give you? Maybe another way of asking it is there, is there anything so core, so central to the meaning of your life that if you took it away or lost it, life would feel meaningless? Or maybe put a different way, would you say that, fill in this blank, if I simply had blank, then my life would truly find meaning. And we could put really good things, great things in this blank. Achievement, a championship, a romantic relationship, competence or skill, a social cause, moral record, religious standing, maybe even success, depending on how we define it, right? We can put good things in this blank, and good things can become ultimate things, and when we do that, they become godlike things. You see, it's not just about turning people to God. Paul's ministry throughout the book of Acts, he wasn't just turning people to God, he was turning them away from their handmade, hand-constructed of the creation counterfeit gods. You see it in Acts 19 on the screen? And the Old Testament really gives us a way for, for us to discern What really is sitting on the altar of my heart, the throne of my heart? What really is? Who really is my God? The Old Testament really uses three main metaphors to talk about idolatry. And these metaphors aren't for the pagans of antiquity. These metaphors are really for God's chosen people, for people who say yes and amen to Jesus today. And so adultery, is there another lover? Are you more satisfied with something or someone more than your satisfaction in God himself? Political allegiance, where's your security? Old Testament people, they would affiliate and align with all these pagan powers of their day and God's saying, do you trust me as your sovereign Lord? We can put our head against our pillow at night and really rest for lots of reasons other than God and religious allegiance. In other words, what saves you? And this one can sometimes feel a little ambiguous. The point is, is that if you ask yourself this question, I'm good enough to stand before a holy God because of blank, what makes you good enough? Whatever you put in that blank may just be your counterfeit God. And the reverse can actually be true too. If there's anything in your life that's so shame inspiring that you feel like it's too big for the grandeur of God's grace, that might actually in a weird reversed way be an idol in your life because it's bigger than the grace that God has purchased through the cross. And so what gives you satisfaction? What gives you security? What is your salvation? What defines you as good enough? And counterfeit gods, if we're satisfied, secure, saved in any counterfeit God, what it's going to do is it's going to make us heart sick. It's going to break and crush our hearts. And you might look at this verse and go, wow, Paul, you were provoked by these idols. 
Just so you know, the Greek word for provoked, it's an intense word, greatly distressed, deeply disturbed. It actually gets at this idea of seizing, seizure, convulsing. Paul is convulsing in a disturbed manner because of the idols. In other words, what's the big deal about idols? Why is Paul freaking out? Well, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, dumb idols, counterfeit idols, fake idols, fake gods, they will break the hearts of their worshiper. Why Paul was provoked was because he saw a city full of heart-crushed, heartbroken people. And so, I don't know if you've ever been around someone, I, I got a buddy in mind right now who just came off a really, really tough breakup. And this buddy, he's, he's deeply heart-crushed, heartbroken. I have a neighbor who was married over 40 years and she recently went through a divorce. She's heart-crushed. She's heartbroken. And my point isn't to pick on these people. My point is actually, I, I feel their pain in so many ways, but the, the way that their hearts are crushed and the symptoms of that broken heart are so obvious in so many ways. And in a similar way, when we allow a counterfeit God to sit on the throne of our heart, we're heart crushed. We're heartbroken. And the symptoms of that kind of heart sickness are so apparent, really for two reasons. Because one, a counterfeit God, an idol, it'll never forgive you. It can't. It's fake. And number two, it'll never satisfy you. It can't. It's not real. And one of the sneakiest and trickiest idols, in my opinion, and this is especially true on a Christian campus in, a, in, in Orange City that has a Christian heritage, the sneakiest of idols are ones with incredible morality and even sort of a Christian veneer to them, a religious veneer. And so here's what I mean. Take the Ten Commandments, for instance. I really don't look at the Ten Commandments as ten rules from God. I really look at the Ten Commandments as ten invitational pathways from God for his people to flourish and find the fullest life possible. Jesus doesn't, God doesn't command these things because he wants us to just fall in line and be obedient. He wants us to be obedient because that's the freest, fullest human life he's designed us. And so these 10 commandments that God lists, and I put them up on the screen through Moses long ago, are still true for us. These are still true to our fullness and flourishing. But did you know you cannot break numbers 2 through 10 without first breaking number 1? It's impossible. All the commandments are predicated on number 1. You always will break number 1 first before you break any other. It's the sin beneath all sins, idolatry. A little example of this is Jesus in the Gospels had this interaction with a man that the Bible describes as a rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to him with an important question. It's a question I hope you are asking in your heart. He comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this is such an important story. It shows up in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Jesus responds to this rich young ruler. He lists out a majority of the last eight commandments in the Ten Commandments. And the rich young ruler confidently goes, I've kept them all. But then Jesus tells him something. He says, go and sell all of your wealth and your possessions. And you know what the man does? He walks away sorrowful, heart crushed. Why? 
What was Jesus doing? Does Jesus command all of us to sell all of our possessions? I think what Jesus was doing was Jesus had the same x-ray vision that Paul had in Athens. Paul saw the idols beneath the city. Jesus saw the idol, the counterfeit God of this guy's heart. Jesus was dealing with commandment number one. You see, wealth and possessions in and of themselves, those are not necessarily in and of themselves a bad thing in many respects. I know some incredibly generous, wealthy people And it can be a good gift from God, but for this guy, Jesus graciously and compassionately revealed the God of his life, this counterfeit God. It's why he walked away heart crushed. Jesus, he's not a great physician and a surgeon because he wants our moral obedience to put on this veneer to measure up. Jesus is the kind of great physician and heart physician. He wants to get our hearts because he knows if he doesn't liberate our hearts in a radical love for him, we're never going to walk in the abundance of how he's designed us to love him and let his love flow out of us through him. This is the brilliance of Jesus. When he was cornered by religious leaders, what's the summary of all the law? What does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Basically, the Shema, what Jesus said, that was the reverse of commandment number one. We don't just avoid bad things. We don't just avoid and try to remove idols from our life. We replace it with something. It's not a life of avoidance. It's a life of pursuit in the love of our great God, echoing a love that he first loved us, and we get to respond and echo his love back to him and in those around us. That's what Jesus was saying. Love the Lord your God. And so let's, let's practice this a little bit, okay? So commandment number nine is all about bearing false witness or lying. Here's what I want to show you is that underneath every lie, there is a God. You break commandment one before you break commandment nine, just like all the other commandments. So let's say I lied. I lied because I didn't want to lose face. And I didn't want to lose face because in that moment, my image versus the perfect image of God and Jesus Christ was my bigger concern. And so I am actually more driven by the potential of negative human opinions of me and trying to save myself and my face in that moment by lying. In other words, I care more about human opinion than God's opinion. I care more about my image than living in the transparent image and face of our God. Does that make sense? The God underneath the lie. What is it? It's myself and others' opinions. You always break commandment one before the other commandments. The commandments, so many of our sins are really symptoms of a deeper issue. We need a heart surgeon, a great physician who can get himself back on the throne of our heart. Amen? And so Tim Keller, uh, he helps us to see that the trickiest part of idolatry, and this, this is probably the deepest I'll go today, is that idols will stack themselves on top of each other in the throne room of our heart. Here's what I mean. Check this out. So Keller says this, counterfeit gods or idols, they affect our basic motivational drives. People strongly motivated by influence and power, well, some are motivated by approval and appreciation, some by emotional or physical comfort, others security and control. People with a deep idol of power, they don't mind being unpopular to gain influence, but a people who are motivated by approval are the opposite. They'll gladly lose power or control if everyone thinks well of them. You see, surface idols, as Keller says, are things like money, spouse, or children, through which deep idols seek fulfillment. 
And let's pick on money for a second with Tim Keller because Jesus picked on money a lot. Man, he pitted God against money a lot. For example, money, it can be a surface idol that serves to satisfy a more foundational influence. Some people want a lot of money as a way to control their world, being safe and comfortable. Others actually want it to have access to social circles where other people think they're beautiful and attractive and they approve of them, while other people will spend their money in lavish ways in this way, and other people will then do it for something different, which is to have power over others and a feeling of superiority. In other words, money can function as a surface idol. And yet, because of various deeper idols like power, approval, comfort, control, the idol of money can actually have a very different pattern of behavior. But in every case, idolatry always enslaves, distorts our lives, and more so, and perhaps more importantly, our hearts. Again, idols are counterfeit gods on the altar of our hearts, and what they do is they can't forgive. They're fake, they can't satisfy, they're not real. They can only hold us captive. They make us heart sick, and more than that, they crush us. And this is why Paul was provoked in Athens. He was provoked deeply. He saw a city full of idols. And before we can remove them and replace them with the love of God received and given, before we can repent in some ways, before we remove, replace, and repent, we have to perceive. We have to see. We have to observe them. We have to know how to identify them. Because Paul, he goes through Athens and he says, on your altars, inscribed on your altars, you say to the unknown God. And then Paul's trying to actually take what's unknown to them and make it known. The God who made the world is an unknown God, a counterfeit God, a God that we don't even realize that's there. Is it really sitting on the altar of our life and is it made by our own human hands? The hard gospel witness work that we're called to, just as Paul was, is to do this, to help people see that they were made for the endless joy of knowing the love of their creator through Christ Jesus. Amen? That is the hard work that we have to do to discern our own altars of our own heart and to discern the altars of our culture and the heart of our culture. And I want to close our time with just these um, closing remarks And so these next four weeks, I want to invite us to look at four idols that I believe God is calling us, your generation, us, into really paying attention to. These idols, these counterfeit gods. In three weeks, I'm going to talk about the idol of control. Two weeks, the idol of consumption. Next week, I'm going to talk about the idol of community, a sacred cow. And today, I'm going to um, just dive in in our closing minutes, talk about the idol of self-creation or the created self, okay? So hang with me just for a few minutes here. Dr. Noble, um, he's a Christian philosopher. He says that our society right now, we are obsessed with self-creation, that we have an understanding of humanity that is this, that I am my own and I belong to myself. This is our understanding of humanity, our anthropology, and it's one that's false. Dr. Noble, he traces political, philosophical, economic, and historical trends over the last few centuries, ultimately pointing to the growing reality that was before you and I were ever born, that we consider ourselves more and more and more, more sovereign over our own lives. We are owners of ourselves, all predicated on the belief of this virtue, 
That freedom is about limitlessness. And this mentality in our society is even leaking into the church. And so he writes this, hang with me. He says, to be your own and belong to yourself, that's that, that anthropology, means that the most fundamental truth about your existence is that you are responsible for your existence and everything it entails. I'm responsible for living a life of purpose, defining my identity, interpreting meaningful events, choosing my values, electing where I belong. And if I belong to myself, then I'm the only one who can set limits on who I am and what I can do. No one else has the right to define me, to choose my journey in life, or to assure me that I'm okay. I belong to myself. But the freedom of sovereign individualism comes at a great price. This burden manifests as a desperate need to justify our lives through an identity crafting and expression. But because everyone else is also working frantically to craft and express their own identity as well, society becomes a space of vicious competition between individuals vying for attention, meaning, and significance, not unlike contrived drama on reality TV. And he's not pointing the finger at any individual, but what he's talking about is the reality that is starkly set up. The gospel of Jesus Christ says we are justified in Christ. But society says right now you are justified by your own self-improvement. He calls it the tyranny of self-improvement, that society is demanding more, demanding better, demanding more efficiency in our being and doing. Noble goes on to describe it this way, that there is always more to buy, always more to improve, always more to watch, and always more to try, and to cope with the emptiness and exhaustion we are left with self-medicating. We've structured our society around this counterfeit God, like Athens structured itself around the Greek gods. This counterfeit God, I am my own and I belong to myself. Reality is, is there's really nothing authentic about this. This reduces our humanness to something very inhuman. We're like a pile of plastic plastic selfie in some sense, where we can melt down and reform. We self-form, reform, self-create, conform, and we keep plastic fluid reforming day to day to day fluidity, and it's exhausting and empty, and it spirals us more and more and more because our identities are malleable within our own creation, our own human hands. The biblical narrative talks about idolatry that every time we want to elevate ourselves out of our human place underneath, a, submitting underneath a, a sovereign God, we actually get the opposite of elevation. We actually get imprisonment, imprisoned in an inhuman way of existing. In a real sense, our modern society wants us to have a sort of self-manufacturing version of ourselves, like a Ken doll in a Barbie world. And I'm curious, have you ever heard of the term zoocosis? Zoocosis. This term is actually a common term that I've recently learned about. It actually is what lions do in a zoo, where they sort of frantically pace, obsessively pace back and forth. They're driven to a sort of psychosis in captivity, and those zookeepers do their best attempt to recreate an animal's natural environment. A zoo is still a zoo, and a lion is still caged. Dr. Noble and others say, we suffer right now from zucosis under the engagement of I am my own and I belong to myself. And this counterfeit God is crushing our hearts. And the symptoms are significant. Rising anxiety rates, depression, 
rise in suicide, addiction, binge watching, pornography, insomnia with gaming, more than sleep, grabbing our phones, mindlessly swiping. The list goes on and on. I don't mean to poke at or pick on any one of those things, but the reality of a society that's self-medicating has never been more clear. And technology gives us endless escape hatches. We're escaping life more than leaning into its fullness. But it makes sense if we're trying to escape a cage because of a bad vision of our humanity. Because the reality is we are not our own. And we don't belong to ourselves. But we need a doctor to get into our hearts and to dethrone these counterfeit gods that are crushing our hearts. We need a great physician who will repair our hearts with nothing more strong and more lovely than the love of God. And I'll close with this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it confronts any and all counterfeit gods and any and all lies. We are not found in who we are based on the malleableness of our own self-creation. It's in Christ and by his grace alone that I share with you this good news because of what scriptures testify to, and I wanna invite the worship team up, what scriptures testify to, and also what Christ testifies to. This is gospel, that we truly are not our own, but we are invited by Christ's grace, the power of his redemption, the goodness of his love, to find a sense of belonging in him. And I wanna tell you, there's nothing counterfeit about this. The gospel is one of belonging. The good news of the gospel, when Christ put his arms wide on that cross, what he was ultimately expressing non-verbally is welcome home to anyone and any all. Come, welcome home. Find yourself in this new humanity in Christ, as Ephesians 2 says. Our existence is in his grace. The most authentic and precious identity that we have is one in an immovable grip. We are immovably claimed. That's authentic. That's real. That's the promise of what Jesus Christ said in his inauguration speech. I have come to set the captives free. We're set free in Christ. The truth will set us free. And I'll close with this. Christianity is not true because it's relevant. It is relevant because it's true. Jesus is not true because he changes your reality. But if you repent, he'll change your reality because he's true. Counterfeit gods, they'll crush your heart all day long. But the one true God will set you free in his love. Truth is a person. He's come. He's died. He wants to invite you home. You receive it by grace. You'll never earn it or deserve it. You receive it by grace. And Acts 17 tells us he doesn't need you. He doesn't, he's not a needy God needing our worship. He doesn't need us. He loves us. He's died for us and he invites us. And I'll leave you with this. Only when the true God is the God in the throne room of our hearts are we truly home. Only when the true God is the God of our hearts are we truly home? Amen? Amen.